morning. Yeah. Good morning, everyone. Um, there's a clear theme through this morning, uh, which Al kicked off with, uh, if you were here when we kicked off, slightly after half past ten. Um, what Al said was, uh, it's a morning for coming to Jesus, or coming to God. And he went through a little list of things, that, different things that may be challenges for us or joys for us, that um, whatever that is, this morning's a time for coming to God and um, we find him as father. If we come to him as his bride, we find joy with him and indeed healing with him. The passage that we're going to look at in Luke's gospel has a focus on healing and cleansing, but I'd like us just to pause before we start. Then a little bit of pausing this morning, haven't we, with, with remembrance, and we took some time um, in what was a gentle time of worship to, to pause and reflect. But just before we look at what Jesus did with a couple of people, I'd like to uh, ask you to pause and reflect on one thing. And that, that what, is it that is, what is it that you're praying about most at the moment? What is your greatest concern or challenge? Just take a moment to get that clear in your mind is God's inviting us to come to him as we are and that means that it's good for us to be clear about what it is that we're coming to bring or to ask Okay, all right, we're going to read from Luke chapter 5, so if you have a Bible with you, please do find it. The Bible is very wonderful, it's the word of God to us, it's full of life, and uh, we're going to read Luke chapter 5 and verses 12 to 26, which are actually two different stories with a common theme that come right after each other. I'm going to make just a couple of comments as we go through and read this together and then pause and ask some questions. So here we go. Luke chapter 5. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. Now, um, it's worth pausing there and just noting the technical fact that the word leprosy was used in the ancient world to cover a much wider range of things than it does today. For us today, leprosy is a specific disease, but then it meant all kinds of infectious skin nastiness of whatever sort. And because people lacked the medical knowledge to know which of those things were infectious and which weren't, there was just a general kind of kind of response to anyone that had those kinds of skin problems. And that's what's meant here by leprosy. But he was covered with leprosy. Actually, the, the, the Greek term here is he had plenty. Plenty. It seems that Luke, the doctor, was using it as a medical term. This was, we probably would say something like critical or what are, what are the medics amongst us? What are the words that we use for that? You know, just acute. That, yeah, acute leprosy, perhaps. Something like that's the sort of thing that's going on here. Acute skin yeah, thing is going on for this poor guy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, 
if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Just to be clear here as well, Jesus doesn't send this man to the priest because the sacrifices are needed to cleanse him. He has already said this word, be clean, and it covers the skin disease and whatever else is going on in the man's life. The sacrifices in the temple were no longer needed because Jesus himself was around as the center of God's saving power. He sent the man to the priest specifically because of the social dimension. It says here, go there and do all this stuff specifically as a testimony. A testimony is a word spoken from one person to another. And the priest had a key role, according to the law of Moses, in being the gatekeeper, or we might say the policeman, of who was allowed in and out of the community. That a word from the priest saying, yes, indeed, this man is clean, was necessary for this leper to come back into society from which he'd been excluded. So Jesus doesn't only restore the man's skin, but he ensures that the man's social standing is restored to him too. After we don't know how many years of social exclusion, Jesus deals with that as well. He deals with his sickness and the shame to which he'd been subject. Let's keep going. Yet the news, the news about him, about Jesus, spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Ha! I wonder how many of us would do that. If you began to see all manner of people come to you for healing and revelation, how strong would your instinct be to get away from it all and to pray? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Later on in this joint, this two-volume book of Luke and Acts, in the book of Acts, something really interesting can be observed. In, in Acts chapter 8 and 9, because in Acts chapter 8, Philip goes to Antioch and revival. Well, it's not even revival. It's like life for the first time comes into Antioch. People are giving themselves over to, uh, to Jesus. There's people being healed. People are astonished. Even the occult leaders are coming and saying, can I get in on this? And an angel of the Lord comes and says to Philip, who's the leading evangelist in all of this. Now, evangelists like going to where there's lots of people. Um, I don't know how many of you have heard Richard Colbrook talking about why he and Kate are going to plant a church in Leeds. 
next summer? The answer is, his answer is 2.6 million reasons why. Because that's how many people there are in Leeds and the greater area who don't know Jesus. So there's a lot of reasons. So evangelists look at the numbers and uh, are motivated to be where people are. Here's Philip, the only person in the New Testament who's named evangelist. Philip the evangelist leading this incredible outbreak of the kingdom of God in Antioch. And the Holy Spirit says, just go out into the desert. I wonder what you would do. But he was following the example of Jesus. Now, how much time he spent praying before the Ethiopian eunuch came along. I mean, we don't, maybe, he, maybe he didn't spend that much time praying, although he was a follower of Jesus. And he knew that Jesus withdrew into the desert to pray. So that probably would have been the first thing he'd think. Why would the angel of the Lord tell you to go into the desert? Not likely to be because there was an Ethiopian eunuch about to come by. More likely just to pray. Anyway, he did. We see in Jesus this tremendous kind of freedom of action. He's not constrained by what other people expect from him. He's not doing what other people want him to do, but has a real openness and sensitivity to the, the leading of his father uh, through the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, if you go to the next chapter in Acts, there's something quite the opposite. In the town of Damascus, Saul, the persecutor, is heading to Damascus to find all the Christians, winkle, winkle them out of their homes and imprison them or worse. And in that context, the Lord speaks to a man called Ananias at a point when, in the modern age, missionaries in countries where there is that kind of threat would have their emergency bag packed, their emergency action plan in place that says, you know, when there's someone from Al-Qaeda in our town, we get out of the town in 10 minutes, we've got a bag packed, we know where we're going. that That kind of a situation in Damascus, and the Lord says to Ananias, stay. Actually, don't just stay in the town, but go to this place and you're going to meet Saul. What a tremendous freedom Ananias had. It's a Christian freedom of action like the one that Jesus displays. Not constrained to remain because there's success or to flee because there's danger, but just able to do what God says to do. I'd like more of that in my life. I don't know if you would. But even in these few verses, we see that, that freedom of action displayed by Jesus. All this stuff kicking off, everyone coming to him, and Jesus withdrew to lonely places and prayed. There's the first story. Here's the second one. One day, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who'd come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, they were all sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus And when they couldn't find a way to do this, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. 
When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. It doesn't actually say friend. In the Greek, it says man. Anyway, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. But it means a little, you can see why they translated it as friend. It sounds a little bit like some sort of soul singer from, anyway. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why why are you thinking these things in your hearts? And which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he'd been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Jesus, with the leper, dealt with his body and with his shame, that is, the trouble that he had in his relationships with other people. With this guy, the paralytic, Jesus deals with his bodily infirmity and also with something else, this time with his guilt. What it was that stood between him, not just with other people, but what stood between him and God. He forgave him so that his guilt was dealt with. This um, bit at the end here, we've seen remarkable things. What that word is getting at, it's the, word, the word is paradoxa, which is where we get our word paradoxical from. It's about things that you don't expect, things that are different to what you would have expected, things that are different to what you'd think, what you'd been taught. This is characteristic of Jesus, that he doesn't just fill in a bit of the detail of things that we already know. But he takes us somewhere else altogether. Enables us to see things we've not seen before. Teaches us things that we'd never have thought. And I wonder, as we look at these verses this morning, whether you're open to Jesus showing you something quite different. I've encouraged us to think about what it is that we hold in our prayers what it is that concerns us, and that if we're coming to Jesus, we'd want to give to him. But there's something coming back the other way, which is that Jesus graciously accepts us coming with the prayers that we pray and the concerns that we have, but he does something remarkable. He doesn't just do what we would do. He doesn't just offer what we would want, but does something different. I wonder how open we are to that today. It leads me to these questions. That was all by way of introduction, all of... Oh, there we go. Um, A few questions. I I wonder whether these are your questions, but I think they're questions we might well bring, might well be brought to mind, having read these few verses. How much faith do we then need to see miracles? Because he says to this guy... Uh, He saw their faith. He saw the the faith of the friends and the man that they brought and said, your sins are forgiven. How much faith do we need to kind of activate God's power? I wonder if you ever ask yourself 
that question. Um, is God willing to heal? Because it says here that Jesus is willing on this particular occasion. But there's a lot of sickness that goes unhealed. Does God always have power? It says at verse 17, the power of the Lord was present. So clearly it was there anyway because he healed him. Does God always have power? And then these other questions. Is my sickness due to my sin? And a question that perhaps we might ask a bit more often. What was it that went wrong that led to my problems? Whatever my problems are, what, what, where did it go wrong? And there's a natural tendency to, to go back and to ask that specific question for ourselves. And for some people, the question may have an extra bit of bite to it, which is to ask, did the, can, can the thing that went wrong ever be put right? Or, I think I know what went wrong, but have I seen it rightly? Questions, questions. The great news here is that Jesus in these few verses was not just wandering about being a kind of mystic teacher, doing the odd thing and leaving people to work it out. By this point, he'd already called his disciples who were going to become apostles. And the context of these few chapters, Luke 5, 6, 7, and 8, is that this is the season in which Jesus was taking hold of these guys and transforming them so that they would be able to go out and do what he was doing. In these few chapters, we read of Jesus touching the lives of some people, but he has an eye on the the much, much greater ministry that's going to be unleashed across the world through all the disciples that will follow. He's not just doing what this moment needs, but he's acting in such a way as to train the disciples so that there will be a massive multiplication, a viral movement of the word and the life of God across the world. So the point is that Jesus isn't trying to be mysterious. He's trying to help people understand the dynamic of the power of God at work so that they would be empowered to go out and do likewise. These verses are meant to empower us, not leave us paralyzed with the questions that we may have. So in answer to these things, I'm not going to go through the verse by verse, but rather just highlight the answers to these questions that are crystal clear if we just take a moment to reflect on the story that's before us. So here's the first thing. It's really straightforward. Okay, that's the context. The first thing is this, that here, as throughout the Gospels, we get this crystal clear note, this bright white light, which is that Jesus loves. It's really, really simple. We ask ourselves the question, uh, does God really care? Is he willing to heal? The answer is, Jesus loves. I probably ought to put a full stop after that, just to make it really clear. Verse 13, and let me just say, this week, um, I happened to be wandering along the Cowley Road with Alex, 
who's not here this I can't see Alex at the moment this morning as a student. Where is he? He's in bed. Okay. All right. <laughs> Confess others' sins in the company of the <laughs> Make sure he listens to this. Um I was walking along the Cowley Road and we bumped into a couple. I don't know if you saw in the papers in the last week or heard on the local news, there was a houseboat that was on fire just at Osney Lock, just here. And the people who were in it lost everything. Um, All of their possessions went up in smoke. They had to break a window to get out and dive into the river to escape. And their dog, Storm, also, they couldn't get her out and she died in uh, in the boat. We were walking along the county road and, and we bumped into them and Alex knows the lady concerned and said, oh, hi, how are you doing? And this story tumbled out, um, still wearing um, the pyjama top from the hospital. They'd gone to hospital and been discharged from hospital in their pyjamas and hospital slippers. Um, had some other clothes because someone had been kind enough to... Um, to buy them some clothes from Primark in the week. I think, um, did you guys give a, did you give her a tent this week? So I, I saw that in the paper. I read that Sarah and Peter had given her a tent. I figured that was you. <laughs> um, one point in the conversation, she said, God must really hate me. Our suffering leads us to doubt God's goodness, doesn't it? I mean, that's, that's what happens. Our suffering lead, leads us to doubt God's goodness. Coming back to Jesus, before he even spoke to this man with the acute skin bleh, thing going on, before he even spoke to him, he reached out and he touched him which no one else would have done. With Ebola in West Africa, at the moment we can probably feel a little bit of the challenge here more keenly than we're used to feeling. Because normally we think any kind of infection, whatever, there's a cure somewhere. There's not a cure for Ebola, and it's highly infectious. And I wonder what would happen if someone... I mean, if, if Ebola came here... How would we respond? That was the challenge that faced people in Jesus' day. Jesus stretched his hand out before he said anything and touched the guy. Actually, we know what people in the ancient world did when they found infectious people. Um, Dionysius, is writing, admittedly a couple of centuries later, said this about the pagan peoples of the Roman Empire. Um, On the first onset of the disease... They pushed the sufferers away and fled, even from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead, and they treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. Which is kind of sensible behavior at one level, but Jesus doesn't do that. Love constrains him. In the parallel to these Uh, to this passage in Mark's gospel, it specifically says that at this point, and meeting this leper, Jesus had compassion 
It doesn't say that in Luke's gospel, but it's part of the story. Jesus had compassion and says, I am willing. Like there was ever any question. Like there was ever any doubt that was justified. Our suffering leads us to question God's love, but Jesus shows that love is real. We know these things, but we do well to reflect on them. One evidence of Jesus' love is actually the behavior of his people, the church of Christ. Dionysius again, having described what the pagans did, he said in the con- describing a plague that swept through um, his region, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them, they departed this life, serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred the death to themselves. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. Today, we don't have that kind of infectious disease through our society, but one of the biggest challenges that we have is children who need care And there's a challenge to find enough people to care as foster foster parents and adoptive parents. Surveys show, I checked these figures yesterday, surveys show that the proportion of foster carers who are Christian ranges, different surveys, from 78 to 92%. This week as I was walking along the Cowley Road and with Alex, I met this couple. I was actually, having shamed him, um, I will now encourage him. I didn't shave him. His good friend Mark did that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, was, I was impressed, actually. Straight away, he said, well, look, I don't know what everything, but I do know that this isn't God's plan for you. I know that God, this isn't what God wants for you because God loves you. That I know, he said. God loves you. This isn't his plan. He doesn't hate you. Don't... Don't be tempted to think that he does. He loves you. And we prayed together. Well, actually, that's not true. He prayed for her. Because I didn't know her. And they they knew each other already. He prayed for her. He said, can I pray? She said, oh, yes, please. He said, I can't can't feel God at the moment. and And I need to. They prayed together with some tears. There's an experience of God which breaks through the questions that we have. We don't entirely understand it, but um, just as the church, whether it's with plague or with children who who need looking after, the church can display the love of God in a way that helps us to be convinced of the truth of it. It's one of the reasons why we, in our mission as a church, want to work through missional communities, not just to run projects that dispense charity though that is good there's something about a community of people embracing others that enables people 
who naturally doubt God's love to see it in action and so to be convinced that there is a God in heaven from whom all this love has come. It makes a difference. There's, Jesus came and convinced people finally that God is love by coming in person and forming community and touching lepers and underlining his willingness born out of love for people. How is my suffering consistent with God loving me? I don't know, but I know that he still loves me. Jesus loves. This is a lady uh, with leprosy, um, which has prevented her eyes from being able to close. Jesus loves. What else have we got? Well, Jesus has power and authority. It says in verse 17, and the power of the Lord was present for Jesus to heal the sick. Question then, did this power kind of come and go? Like um, Boris Johnson's you know, expression of his faith, that it sort of comes and goes a bit like, was it Magic FM as you drive through the Chilterns? Um, well, David Cameron plagiarized it from Boris Johnson, I think. Um, is that how God's power works? That it sort of comes and goes and fades and it's sometimes a bit fuzzy? No, clearly not. In John chapter 1 and verse 32, John the Baptist is recorded as saying that he saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove on Jesus and remain on him. This was distinct from what happened to other people. Other people may have had the Spirit come down on them and whatever, but for Jesus, the Spirit came down and remained. There was a consistency in the Spirit of God being with Jesus such that his power was also consistent. And later in the New Testament, there are some very eloquent words that put all of this Uh, make all of this very clear for us. Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Oh, and, by the way, through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And Just to be clear, sustaining all things. Wow. Jesus Jesus made all things, sustains all things. Colossians 1, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven And on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He made everything. He sustains it. It just holds together in him. Now, it's a little bit incredible to link these statements of cosmic power, creator God, with a man touching lepers in a mud-built home. But it's the same God. It's the same Son. It's the same Jesus. He says here clearly that he forgave this paralytic in the way that he did and healed him in the way that he did consciously 
knowing that those around would see this as a claim to be the only true God. And he did it anyway. It wasn't, he wasn't upset that they might get confused. He was delighted that they'd see the truth. That this man wandering around, touching lepers, having roofs taken apart above him, was truly creator God. So where it says in the Gospels once or twice, Matthew 13, 58, I've not put the references up, I'm afraid, but if you want to note them down, Matthew 13, 58, and Mark 6, verse 5, it says in a couple of places, he couldn't, he couldn't perform many miracles. He couldn't perform many miracles. Well, it, that's what it says in the one Gospel. The other one, it says, he couldn't perform any miracles, oh, except a few healings. Like as a little footnote. To make sense of that, we need to remember that those, that, that happened in Nazareth. The place where he couldn't heal people was Nazareth. A few weeks ago, Steve Thomas was preaching on Luke chapter 4, and when Je- explains what happened when Jesus went to Nazareth. They heard him. They said that he had power in his words, who had gracious words from God, with God's power. And then they chose to reject him and to ignore the authority that he had, picked up stones to stone him. And he managed to make his way away through the crowd. He slipped away. This is the context in which it's hard to work miracles. It's hard to touch people and heal them when, they, when they're running away from your healing power, when they are rejecting you, when they're picking up stones to throw them at you. It's hard to lay hands on people. But it says he couldn't do many miracles. They lacked faith, and he couldn't do many miracles there. Please don't let's imagine a little church meeting where people can't quite stoke up enough faith to make Jesus do something, and Jesus says, oh, well, in that case, I can't do much here. That's not what's going on. They're on the edge of a cliff. And and they've got stones in their hands. And the scriptures say they didn't have any faith. Well, no. And God couldn't perform, Jesus couldn't perform. He still manages to heal a few people. I mean, I, I, I don't know how that happened. We can imagine, can't we? Maybe as he's pushing his way through the crowd, like, duff, 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 as he slips away. <laughs> I, 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 there's no implication that God is weak. The main circumstances that oppose miracles happening are trying to stone God and rejecting him. There is a dynamic here of faith, and that's the last thing I just wanted to take a little bit longer to talk about. Jesus does clearly respond to faith. Verse 20, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. See, several times in Luke's gospel, we get this phrase, your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. This is one of those times recorded in chapter 8. This woman came and touched Jesus in a crowd. She'd been bleeding for years and no one could help her. However much money she spent, she touched Jesus. It got sorted out. Jesus finds her and he says, your faith has healed you. There was a leper 
with his leper mates, 10 of them bumped into Jesus. Jesus heals them all. Uh, They all go away. One comes back and says, more, wants more, wants a relationship of some sort with Jesus. Jesus says to him, it was your faith that healed you. There's a blind man. Because of his blindness, he couldn't physically make his way to Jesus. So when Jesus was in his vicinity, chapter 18, he pushed hard to get Jesus' attention in the best way he knew how. And he shouted and he shouted. People told him to shut up and he shouted all the more. I want Jesus. He pushed through the crowd, not physically, but he pushed through their annoyance, which is possibly an even harder thing to push through. And he got to got Jesus and Jesus heals him of his blindness. For the paralytic and his friends, for this woman who was bleeding, for the other leper, for the blind man, their faith was seen in the action of coming to Jesus. Now, I'm not fool enough to try and give you a complete definition of faith. It's a, it's a kind of complex and powerful thing. But I do know this, that faith is seen in the action of coming to Jesus. When we come to Jesus, that is an, ex, an expression of faith. The, the purpose of the Old Testament sacrifices offered in the temple, the purpose of those sacrifices was to turn away the wrath of God. Or to put it in more modern language, which might therefore be a a little bit more meaningful to us, was to improve his attitude towards the person making the sacrifice. You offered a sacrifice to change God's attitude towards you, where he had been angry to make him peaceable through the offering of a sacrifice. No, No, Jesus doesn't need a sacrifice. Jesus cleanses the leper and forgives the paralytic before there's any sacrifice. He does say to the leper, get a sacrifice made. Let's deal with the shame. Let's get you restored properly to your place in community. But Jesus doesn't need a sacrifice to make him happier, to make him more favorably disposed towards people. He comes as the exact representation of the Father and shows what God has always been like makes a profound comment on the significance of the Old Testament sacrifices and how they weren't really truly needed to connect to the heavenly reality. Jesus is already happy to come and dispense God's goodness. doesn't wait for somebody to do something nice to him first. He was already feeling positive about the leper before the leper came close. Same with the paralytic. So why am I saying this? Because I think for some of us, we can sometimes see faith like it's a New Testament equivalent of an Old Testament sacrifice. Like it's the thing that we have to do in order to please God. Like if we have enough faith, it's a bit like if I have a little bit of faith, it's like I'm bringing a pigeon to put on as a sacrifice and that will please God a little bit and something good might happen. If I have a lot of faith, it's like I've got a very bull to come and stick on a, a sacrifice and God will be happier with that and a bit more might happen. We think, sometimes think of faith in those terms that like the more of it there is, the more it will kind of cheer God up enough to start being nice to us. I'm sure you never feel that way, but... 
I confess I have occasionally thought along those lines. It's true, because it says it in Hebrews 11, it's true that without faith, no one can please God. It says that in Hebrews 11 verse 6. But it's really important that it gives a reason for that. It says, without faith, no one can please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. So what's the point? The point is that if we don't have faith, we'll never come. Faith is seen in the act of coming to Jesus. The paralytic's brought to Jesus and he says, there's faith there, I see it. The woman reaches out to him in the crowd. He says, oh, it's faith, I see it. You've, people who come to Jesus are displaying the faith that's in them. In other words, the thing that pleases God, the, the only thing that we need to do is to come to him. That, that is enough to, to please him. Revelation, the book of Revelation tells us there's a door standing open in heaven. There's no, it's not closed. It's not um, like we just need to find a way to knock loud enough or something, try and get, you know, the housekeeper's attention. Will St. Peter come to the pearly gates for me? Door standing open. And Jesus has come. He, he, I could communicate any one thing this morning. It's just how much Jesus loves it when we come to him. He loves it. Um, we're going to pray. That's what we're going to do. Um, and if sometimes preachers invite everybody to come to the front of a meeting, and there's several different reasons for that. Sometimes it's because it gives you a reason to preach another 20 minutes over the top of everybody. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Have you ever been in those meetings? Someone says, come forward for a response, and they carry on preaching for the 15 minutes. So they, they finished their sermon on time, but that was just the ministry. In it. Anyway, um, that's one reason. There are better reasons. Um, one of the, the better reasons is that it gives us an opportunity, just in a small way, to demonstrate our faith. This faith that's expressed, come to Jesus. If we will come then that's demonstrating our faith. Because it means we're doing it because we believe he exists. Actually, we believe that he loves people. We believe that his power doesn't fluctuate. But it's constantly present. And I asked you right at the beginning to have, what is it that God's, what, what is it that's in mind? What, what anxiety or concern? Or what is it that you're carrying? I'd like to finish quite simply by saying, well, let's, let's all make a choice this morning, to come to Jesus with that. Whatever it is, it is, say, well, Jesus, it's going to be better if I'm nearer you. <laughs> um, I, I can't promise miracles of healing, but I know Jesus heals, and if anyone's sick, I'd encourage you to exercise faith to come. In a minute, I'm going to invite you to come for, not come to me, or because Jesus is near the drum kit, but just because it's a way of saying, this, I, want to, I, want to, I want to go to Jesus this morning with whatever it is. If it's, if it's sickness, that's okay to come and we'll pray for healing. If oh, I could list off all kinds of you know, things that might be going, but 
if there's loneliness, if there's actually for some people some really stubborn habits of sin. You know, oh, I need cleansing. Um, I think it's significant this morning that we're looking at the story of the leper whose shame held him outside of society. I think there is something in that for anyone who's feeling lonely. For, maybe you don't even know why it is that relationships aren't quite working for you, but you know you feel excluded. It's an awful thing to feel excluded. And you know, again, I've got no magic wand to wave to sort it out, but Jesus, Jesus performs miracles and he places the lonely in families. It's worth coming to him.